Rishi Sunak is, is often called a kind of a tech bro in, in a sort of critical way. But actually, from, from the perspective of the startup community, that's often a good thing because it means he cares about this stuff and wants to try and get the best deal for us. As startups, you're, you're taught to kind of build these minimum viable products and then scale quickly. And, and the process of, of kind of that product journey looks quite different to what it would look like in government, and rightfully so. Administration by HMRC is just not very good, bluntly. Uh, it's not being administered very well. And so kind of how do we make sure that the system is working properly as well as sort of the... You know, it's not just about the policy being right, it's also about the sort of delivery being right. From the first-time founders to the funds that back them, innovation needs different. Our episode partner, HSBC Innovation Banking, is proud to accelerate growth for tech and life science businesses, creating meaningful connections and opening up a world of opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Discover more at www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com en-gb. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly chat with the movers and shakers of the UK tech industry and the destination for all things UK tech related. And this week I'm joined by Dom Hallas, the Chief Executive of the Startup Coalition, a pressure group giving voice to Britain's startups and scale-ups. Welcome, Dom. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, Let's start by explaining the genesis of the Startup Coalition. You had a different name to start with. So tell us a bit about how you came about and then, you know, what your aims are, what, what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, sure. So so we were founded in 2010 as, as CODEC or the Coalition for a Digital Economy, for sort of give us the full name. Originally founded by our, our current chair, a guy called Jeff Lynn, who founded Cedars, the equity crowdfunding platform, and Mike Butcher, who is a tech journalist himself and, and works at yeah. TechCrunch, with a kind of view to addressing at the time a specific problem in the ecosystem when it came to policy, but also address that wider need of the startup community, which was pretty nascent in 2010, to to kind of have the ability to engage with government. And broadly speaking, that means engaging across three topics. So uh, access to talent, so that's immigration policy and skills policy. Access to finance, so there's a lot about kind of venture capital markets and investment markets, but also uh, R&D funding, you know, R&D tax credits, anything that gets money into companies, basically. And then the third bucket, which is around regulation. And so that can be big cross-cutting technology regulation issues like data policy or competition policy or platform regulation or increasingly things like AI as well. Or it can be within the individual verticals of the sort of technology economy. So, you know, whether it's fintech or the gig economy or health or or transport or wherever you want to look, there's obviously a sort of wide range of, of other bits and bobs going on within these different verticals that we're working on too. Now, as we speak, there's a big bit of legislation coming up known as the autumn budget. What is it that you're hoping to see come out of that that is going to really help the tech ecosystem? So basically, every year, the government has these two big fiscal events, the budget, which is in the spring, and then the autumn statement. And and obviously, like every single one of these, we're advocating for the best possible deal we can get for the community. I think there's sort of two specific areas that we're looking at really closely when it comes to the autumn statement. The first is R&D tax credits. So there's been a real kind of ongoing challenge in the community around R&D tax credits. So for those of you that don't know, R&D tax credits are the kind of the fundamental function that allows um, businesses doing really great R&D, innovative R&D, to reclaim some of the cost of that against their, their tax bill. 
And they get money back from HMRC for doing that great R&D, and it's really helpful for their cash flow and all the other things and able to reinvest in the business. Uh, the sort of headline rate of those credits has been cut significantly over the past year, which is an ongoing problem for the community that we want to address. And we need to work out how, how to ensure that the most innovative businesses are able to access the enhanced credit that was created by the government in the spring. But we want to sort of widen the criteria for that to ensure that more businesses can access it. But there's also an underlying problem of, frankly, like the quality of administration by HMRC is just not very good, bluntly. Uh, it's not being administered very well. And so kind of how do we make sure that the system is working properly as well as sort of the, you know, it's not just about the policy being right, it's also about the sort of delivery being right. So that's the first thing. So so tax credit's like top of the list, really, really important to, to all the community. There's so many startups up and down the country that use, use R&D tax credits every year to get some more funding to build stuff. And the second is, is pension fund reform. And so there's been this huge progress made in certainly the past 18 months around what's called the Mansion House Compact, which is a commitment from some of the biggest pension funds in the country to put some of their money into what are described as unlisted assets, but it includes things like venture capital. And the sort of next stage of that is for the government to, to sort of get the ball rolling on some of the, the legislative mechanisms, the policy mechanisms that are required to deliver on some of those changes. And so we had been, you know, there'd been some speculation that there might be something in the King's speech related to that, whether there'll be a pension fund or sort a of pension reform bill. We haven't seen that, but we do expect some stuff in the autumn statement that will help move that along. So so they're the two big things that we're, we're kind of waiting on. But then, you know, the nature of these these kind of fiscal events is there's obviously a whole smorgasbord of things that can impact the community in lots of different ways. You know, there's been some talk of things like um, ISA reform, which is related to savings, but if depending on how people can deploy their savings, it might be impact on the community or not. Um, and obviously, anything and everything that the government rustles up in terms of policy that we try and try and keep an eye on. So lots going on. Now, you mentioned pension reforms there. Uh, do you see that as being the kind of single biggest thing for UK startups this year? One of your colleagues at the Startup Coalition wrote in an op-ed recently that seeing pension fund capital deployed to back scale-ups would mean there was a true bridge between ideas and IPO, which is, is quite a nice way to put it. Is, is that how you see it too? And and, and how, just how significant is it? Yeah, it's massive. It's absolutely huge. I mean, you know, I, I could sort of sing you a song about how important it is for the companies. And we <laughs> speak to founders every day about about their experiences and, and, and what they need. You know, like the, the bottom line is we know that there are gaps in funding at different sort of stages of the, of the kind of startup journey and scale-up journey. And we definitely need to address those. But I also sort of think from from my perspective as a as a person who pays into my pension, um, and you know, just like like my, my parents pay into their pension, like they they need to get the best that they can possibly have as well. And I think you know, so it's not just about whether or not startups and scale-ups can benefit, even though I think they will. It's it's actually also whether British people can benefit from the success of our startup ecosystem. And so there's kind of now a bit of a trope that, that the Chancellor has been using, and I think that you know a bunch of people in the community have been talking about for a long time, which is one of the challenges of the huge success of the tech sector in the past now sort of 15, 10, 15 years, is that the true kind of financial beneficiaries of that have been teachers in, in Ontario, because the Ontario Teachers Fund is the one that's put in the money. And, you know, still we're seeing that challenge. And that's part of the reason why we're advocating so hard to ensure that pension funds in this country are deploying into things like venture capital, because we think the returns are better. So, you know, the, and that will benefit the companies because they'll be able to grow more effectively and deliver on those returns. But it'll also benefit the sort of scheme members of these pensions who haven't seen great returns in recent years, but will see better returns if the, the sort of money's invested differently. I'd quite like to hear you sing a song about pension reform. I might uh, 
I'm, I'm not sure about my singing voice, Jane. I mean, I'll, have, <laughs> I'll happily have a go. I'm not not sure. About, I mean, you don't, you know, you, they sort of when you think about the best topics possible to sing songs about, I'm not sure pension for reform is topping the charts, but we'll wait and see. Uh, yeah, fine. OK, we'll let, we'll, let, we'll let you go on that one then. Now, you also mentioned the King's Speech and what wasn't in there. What was in there that you, you kind of thought was good for startups? And I guess perhaps the most controversial bit of legislation is the idea of the Investigatory Powers Act getting an update. Now, I've written about that way back in the day. It's a really knotty, complicated subject. What are your thoughts specifically on that? Yeah, so so on the on the kind of Investigatory Powers Act stuff, I think, look, there's been an ongoing tension for a long time about the the role of, of government in and the role of sort of the security state, for want of a better description, and the nature of the Home Office and its intervention in, in technology. It's kind of, you know, it's been a long-running saga, I think it's fair to say, and that's spanned multiple pieces of legislation at this point, whether it's the Online Safety Bill or, or the Investigatory Powers Act. And I think, like, the reality is, the, the challenge for a company's perspective is what, what is sort of unacceptable, and I think will continue to be unacceptable is the idea that home office officials or security officials will fundamentally have some kind of sign-off say in the nature of the product development process and i think that's like a very reasonable line for industry to draw and i think that's ultimately a lot of where the debate <laughs> debate lies like there are obviously then a whole swathe of other questions that can can fall out of that but but i think that you know the truth is like that will run and run and i don't think it will be you know we'll, we'll probably see this act come and go and then you know whether it's passed or not and then we'll still be debating it because it's one of those constant tensions between the nature of the advances in technology versus the the sort of challenges that will come with it and and i think you know there's sort of a in many ways that that tension is is one that's entirely healthy but actually the the other piece of legislation that was that was sort of in the king's speech that we are really excited about is is the autonomous vehicles bill which is sort of a you know a huge advance and sort of a real success story from from the kind of ecosystem perspective i have to give a sort of real props to the the folks at, at Wave who've been really like banging the drum on this because obviously it's so impactful to them and the amazing technology that they're building here in London. But, you know, the ability to kind of make the UK the home of of the, the industry in Europe and ensure that, like, you know, autonomous vehicles, whether that's uh, the likes of Wave who are building cars or whether it's people like Starship Technologies, where I'm from in Leeds, that are sort of pootling around and delivering the the kind of co-op co-op uh, shopping and their little ways. It's like, you know, the ability to use those most effectively and the ability to harness the technology we're building requires legislation. And so it's great that the government's bringing that forward as well. Do you think that means that we are one of the leaders in autonomous vehicles then? Absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, if you go and sort of view the technology that Wave are building, I think there's no doubt that what they're doing is, is world leading. I think, you know, ultimately it, it kind of, the part of the reason for unlocking the legislative side of the process is, is to be able to ensure that, companies like them and others are able to attract the kind of funding to ensure that we remain at the forefront of this stuff so you know the products are already being built to some extent there's still going to be challenges along the way just like there are challenges in other jurisdictions but ultimately it's about being an environment that allows the best opportunity for those companies to thrive so we're optimistic like i said it's good that the legislation is being put in place and we'll wait and see what happens in the sort of coming weeks months and years i guess Now, all of this government legislation, the good, the bad and the ugly, could be undone because we're coming up to the possibility of a new government. Are you concerned uh, about what might happen under a Labour government? We've also seen all the party conferences, so I guess you got a bit of a picture of what to expect if we did see a change of government. What did you think? Yeah, so so we were at both the party conferences. In fact, like we, the Startup Coalition, for the first time this year, had had what we described as, as sort of 
uh, tech hubs at the the party conferences, at both party conferences, had a whole range of events, I think sort of 750 plus attendees, you know, 10 ministers and shadow ministers. So we had a real good sort of snapshot, I suppose, of of all the kind of techie stuff that's that's been going on um, at the party conferences. And really importantly as well, like kind of managed to get, so so the Tory party conference was in Manchester, the Labour party conference in Liverpool, managed to actually get some local startups from Liverpool and Manchester and, and not just Liverpool and Manchester, but elsewhere that wanted to come involved in stuff, which I think is a really great bit of progress, frankly, because sometimes these party conferences can feel, you know, a bit stuffy and a bit, uh, if we're honest, like political people are a, a bit nerdy in their own way and tech people are nerdy, but in a different way. So it's nice to kind of blend them together, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we'll wait and see what happens. Look, like, obviously, the election's potentially, more, you know, a year or so away. We don't know exactly when that's going to happen. You know, the polls are where they are and people can kind of judge whether or not that may or may not happen. But we're really optimistic either way, I think is the bottom line. Look, you know, um, the the sort of, the Prime Minister and others have been super supportive of the sector uh, over the past few years. Like, Rishi Sunak is, is often called a kind of a tech bro in, in a sort of critical way. But actually, from from the perspective of the startup community, that's often a good thing because it means he cares about this stuff and wants to try and get the best deal for us, but also kind of create the best environment possible as well. But at the same time, you know, we've had an awful lot of engagement with with the Labour team. You know, we had a, a sort of the Shadow Chancellor sit down with a range of our companies about a month ago. and We've been really uh, sort of, you know, pleasantly engaged by the the sort of volume of information, the clarity about what they're trying to achieve, uh, and and the attention to detail in terms of like, okay, well, what is it that that we're trying to deliver on that you guys need? And and I think the core message and the thing that we're really pleased seems to have landed is from our perspective, it's don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Ultimately, there's an awful lot that's been good in the past kind of 13 years at this point of a Conservative government. But of course, there's loads to fix, right? As in, you know, like the pension fund reforms that we've been talking about just now, they'll take a decade to deliver. So like whoever is in government like has to be focused and, and kind of continue to hold, in many ways, hold the pension fund's feet to the fire to some extent about the commitments they've been making through the voluntary compact that's that's happened. And what's really optimistic and we're really positive about in in that regard is that Rachel Reeves is as committed, if not more committed, to some of those changes than the current chancellor. And so, like, you're in that great position where, regardless of the outcome, the ecosystem continues to thrive. And I think that's that's the bottom line. Is like, you know, our message is is actually more about the nature of the businesses themselves and the kind of opportunity it is for the UK economy. And I think any politician that understands and wants the UK to succeed will appreciate that to some extent that will rely on these kind of growth businesses. And so, you know, we're we're pretty pretty confident that whatever happens will be in a good place. Yeah, continuity is important, but also moving fast. You know, this is this is one of the biggest issues that government has had when it's tried to sort of regulate tech, is that tech is a hugely fast-moving industry, changes all the time. Government takes a lot longer to catch up. Is there anything that can be done about that sort of fundamental problem and, and mismatch between the tech industry and uh, and the government? Yeah, it's always, it's an interesting debate. I mean, you know, and I say this as a, I was a civil servant, so I, I worked in government. Uh, the Brexit ministry, I suppose, for my sins, it was a, a joyous experience. Um, but but I think that, like, the reality is it is, it is a challenge, like, and there are, there are legitimate reasons for that, right? We, we have to be honest and say, you know, as startups, you're you're taught to kind of build these minimum viable products and then scale quickly, and and the process of, of kind of that product journey looks quite different to what it would like look like in government, and rightfully so. At the end of the day, like if you're a government, like you have an obligation not to build a minimum viable product. You have to build a product that works every single time any citizen clicks on it. You know, you have to engage in a way that is very very different. And I think we kind of have to acknowledge those distinctions. But one of the big ways that you know you can clearly see the value of of the tech sector and and in way in which it can work better with government 
is the ability to get more people with with some of the modern understanding of data science, of technology skills, of all the kind of core assets that the ecosystem has into government in a better way. And actually, one of the things that we've been really pleasantly surprised with, with the creation of DSIT, which we think is a really great thing as a department, is their ability to say, actually, no, how do we go out and get the, the expertise from the sector? And some of that is, for example, using stuff like secondments, which they're increasingly looking at both for you know, people going into government from the startup and technology community more broadly, but also people coming out of government and learning what it's like to work in these kind of businesses and having a better understanding. And so whether it's like that kind of core stuff, but also on things like, and we can talk, I suppose, about the the work that's happened on the AI summit and beyond. So much of that is being able to draw in this talent globally from the technology sector, people who understand best the implications of the massive progress that's been made in AI to be able to most effectively shape the kind of conversations around its potential regulation. And so so that's really great and long may it continue and hopefully we can kind of broaden and deepen that a little bit because it's you know right now that's the it's the parts of government that care about the tech the most i suppose who are most engaged on some of those things and in many ways a lot of the challenges i guess are, are often in the parts of government that care about the tech the least right and it's just like how do we in, sort of encourage them along the way and so that's still an open question but but we're actually really you know i've been doing this job five five and a half years now and i've been sort of amazed at the level of progress in terms of understanding and depth of appreciation for the necessity of some of those those skills and the necessity of those interactions with people who have that outside expertise coming into government to be able to help address some of the questions that you're talking about. So we'll wait, we'll wait and see what happens, but we're pretty optimistic. HSBC Innovation Banking, our partner for this episode, provides commercial banking services, expertise and insights to the technology, life science and healthcare, private equity and venture capital industries. To find out why innovation needs different, go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com en-gb. So let's talk a little bit about the AI Summit that you mentioned. I mean, in some ways, this was a really good test case, wasn't it? Because this was a, a the UK trying to get a sort of front forward uh, forward march on other countries by by saying, "Look, we're really going to start start tackling this." B, it was uh, it was a technology that, whilst it's by no means a new technology, is obviously kind of now part of everyone's consciousness since uh, ChatGPT, and therefore, you know, lots of questions over how we should um, go forward as a society with it. So there was it, it, there was a lot riding on that conference, really, wasn't there? And an awful lot of chatter around it. I think my summation was that not a lot happened. That there was a lot of, you know, famous people saying we've got to be careful and then all going home. Is is that fair? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it is actually. I think I think look, like I, I would I would say so a few different things. I think we can't underestimate the importance of simply getting the actually globally relevant stakeholders in a room for, for for two days to have conversations about some of the implications of this stuff like it is it is legitimately a huge democratic sort of um, diplomatic achievement to get the chinese government and the american government on the same panel discussing ai safety like i think that's like and i think that's kind of you know it's it's easy to dismiss this stuff but actually like that's just not happened right like that's not a thing that has occurred and and fair play to the government for for effectively pulling it off i also think that there's a you know it's not about necessarily kind of 
solving it all in one go. Do you know what I mean you can't you can't eat, eat everything on the plate at once. Like the reality is, it's a question of how do you build and have these conversations in a way that structures and leads forward. And one of the other kind of optimistic things, I guess, to come out of the summit is is ultimately that what you have is continuous work planned where I think the Koreans are hosting next and then, and then the French in the future. And so there's kind of a natural journey that this is going to go on. But the final thing is, and I, and I think that this was maybe, not, I was going to say not dismissed, but, but sort of sceptically looked at a little bit, is like the what's happened is other jurisdictions, as a result of the UK pushing this stuff forward, have announced there are things that they want to do. And like sometimes that can be, I, I think one of the challenges of, the nature of certainly political coverage in the UK. It tends to be a little bit like, oh, is this like a snub to the Prime Minister because, you know, Joe Biden's announced this thing? And it's like, well, I mean, you know, in many ways, the kind of, you can cover it as as Punch and Judy if you want, but actually, like, is it a good thing that, like, because the UK's been pushing forward, the US, you know, what the White House has decided that they need to make progress on this stuff? Of course it is, because it's a good thing that we need to make progress on globally. So, so I guess, like, we think they've done a pretty good job with the summit in general. I mean, I think what I would say is this the kind of other work that we published just before the summit, which was a big report that we did as part of a joint project with um, the Tony Blair Institute, which was obviously founded by the former Labour Prime Minister Tony Blair think tank, and Onward, which is a, a sort of centre-right think tank, sort of more closely linked with the Conservative Party, was a sort of big report on, on the AI startup ecosystem and what we need to do better in the UK. And I think that the big thing that we want to see kind of going forward on AI is obviously there's been this amazing focus on AI safety, which is really, really important, and the progress being made and the conversations that the government are having are fantastic. But we also need to do the sort of bread and butter stuff to ensure that we can build the kind of companies here that are making the amazing progress in AI. So we've got this great ecosystem as it stands, probably, you know, we've got 1700 companies now in the UK, but actually they need access to the talent and the finance and the compute power and the regulatory environment that allows us to continue to build great AI in this country. Because, you know, ultimately, so much of the ability to have the UK as a driving force behind some of these conversations is predicated on our expertise as a country our ecosystem as a country and our kind of credibility on the stage that that provides so so i think there's a you know our message from a kind of startup coalition perspective is the summit was fantastic and i think the government did a hell of a job um but we also need to ensure that going forward there's all this work on making sure that we've not just got the sort of safest ai ecosystem in the world but we got the best one and so how do we kind of do that bread and butter work as well one of the criticisms was that there was too much focus on the big tech companies and what they were doing with AI and not enough on the startups. Do you think that the government got that right in in terms of the summit, inviting the right people, allowing that them to be part of the conversation? Yeah, so so I think, look, it's always a balance with these things. And like I say this as someone who, who worked as a diplomat for a little while in government, so I'm fundamentally sympathetic to the challenges of doing it. But but I, I would say the, the clear focus of the summit was on what's often now described as kind of frontier AI safety, but what really means the scary stuff, right? Basically, like the really scary things that AI could potentially do. Can AI destroy the world, basically, if we're frank, right? And, uh, and you know, government's got in a bit of a muddle saying this quite often and ended up with funny front pages. But, but if you're going to focus on those things, then the point is you need the people who are doing those really scary things in the room to have those conversations, whether that's people in government who are engaging with it or people in industry who are engaging with it. Now, the truth is, like, the vast majority of startups in this country that are building amazing AI uh, solutions aren't building things that are super scary <laughs> and that's a good thing right as in they're building this great product and uh, you know i was we we kind of had a long conversation when we launched our report just before the summit with matt clifford who who is obviously an investor himself in the ecosystem but also was the the sherpa for the summit on behalf of the prime minister and and like 
so much of what Matt's been saying in public and private over the past month is, look, like, if if you're not that kind of company that is doing the scary stuff, go ahead, build the thing. We're really excited to see you make progress. In many ways, you don't want to be in the room with governments telling you, you know, oh, God, like, actually, we need to consider restricting your activities. So I think it's been that fascinating challenge. I totally understand the kind of FOMO from the startup ecosystem in terms of like, why aren't we being invited? Why aren't we in the room? But if you flip it around, like the reality is what you've got is a bunch of founders saying, we really need to be in the room because because like we would quite like to be in these conversations about how we'll be regulated. And actually, like the government doesn't even want to regulate those companies because they're doing stuff that's really great and they want to leave them alone. And so it's like that's very rare that you get a situation where companies like please regulate us. And so actually, I think in many cases, I, I sort of there's clearly going to be a lot of conversations to come further down the line about exactly how different models are structured and exactly how the regulation is structured. And we're engaging with an awful lot of that. But for the time being, when it's that real frontier safety stuff, I don't think it's that, you know, I, I think the ability to kind of engage in it is ultimately, for the most part, for the people who are doing the crazy, scary stuff. And it doesn't mean that when when you have the wider policy conversation, government isn't appreciative of the need to include a wider range of people. So so I, I totally get the sort of concern, but I think, in truth, there's a bit of a balance to strike. And actually, I'm not sure that it was, I'm not sure that it was wrong. Now, you mentioned that the party conferences were out of London. This has become a big thing for a lot of companies, including the BBC, not wanting to be seen as London-centric. It's also very important for tech that it's not entirely all happening in London. How, how do you think regional tech is doing? and What is it that cities really need to do to build a sort of thriving tech scene? Yeah, I mean, I think it's doing really great, right? We, we have to be honest, like we were... We were up in Liverpool for for the Labour Party conference and and kind of hosted a great dinner with local founders. We did the same in Manchester. There's some amazing stuff going on, and we you know as as this kind of organisation at the Startup Coalition, we try not to kind of come in and I think this is always the risk is come in and be like we're the people from London and we think we know what's going on. It's like no, that's nonsense, right? The reality is there's local organisations and people who've been doing loads of like really hard work on the ground to make that progress. I think like from a kind of you know what can cities do better perspective, just purely from a, with my public policy hat on, I suppose. I think there's some really exciting lessons to learn from from different places about how you do these things, right? So actually in Liverpool was a really good example. What they're doing is they kind of created their own their own fund that's going to co-invest in some some companies, which I think is really exciting through the the combined authority. I think that's like a really interesting model that can be replicated in different ways. We've seen that done in London as well with things like London Co-Investment Fund. So that's got a lot of potential. I think there's obviously the kind of bread and butter stuff around ensuring that affordable workspaces are there and things as well. And there's just the, the ability to bang the drum, right? One of the big shifts of the past kind of 13 years of government is the creation of of these mayors and you see that so effectively advocating on on a wide range of issues and it can also advocate for the successes of their own ecosystems and so you know when you go to Manchester and you see Andy Burnham talking about the successes of of Manchester businesses or when you go to Leeds where I'm from and you see Tracy Braben doing some of that or Birmingham and Andy Street like it's the ability to kind of tell that story of like we've got these great businesses here we're building these great companies come and see them come and invest in them you know come and buy from them and so I think you know there's a there's sort of lots of different policy tweaks that that we could see but ultimately the longer term message is that actually you've seen huge growth in these places and and you know huge growth in the number of jobs there huge growth in the number of companies there I think the the core question now is like much like the kind of London ecosystem, for want of a better description, was five years ago, is is some of those scale those scale up questions, which is like how do you identify and ensure those companies are able to get investment uh, in the longer run? Um, but that's not you know that that's not 
a story that we haven't addressed before. Like, right, ultimately, this was a massive problem in the wider ecosystem five years ago. There have been government interventions to address it. Now we're seeing this huge boon of companies that have been able to, to sort of raise capital higher up, the, higher up the value chain. And so it's, you know, there are familiar sort of journeys that companies can hopefully go on now and be able to kind of build their businesses. And you're seeing some of those businesses thrive. Like, I think there's a there's a kind of natural British thing to to worry about a London versus not London, and it's it's an understandable thing. Like, like I said, I'm from Leeds, and and the truth is, like so often, the, all conversations are framed that way, partially because people are sick of people from London coming and telling what to do. But I do think that that there's a sort of the reality is like if you look at the data. The, these ecosystems across the UK have been remarkably successful in comparison to other European jurisdictions and, you know, capital cities in the European jurisdictions, larger cities in the European jurisdictions. And so we're doing pretty bloody well. And I think sometimes, like weirdly, the comparison with London makes make people look kind of worse because London itself is doing so well, when actually, like, if you compare them to other relevant cities, they're doing significantly better. And so, you know, we kind of fall into that default of, like, London versus the rest of the country. But I think it's worth looking at all these different places in the context of the wider kind of global comparisons. And actually, the answer is that the UK as a whole, whether it's London or whether it's, you know, the northern cities or whether it's Edinburgh or whether it's Oxford and Cambridge or whether it's Bristol, are doing really great. Um, And so, like, we, we should be really positive about that and shout about it a lot more. Now, we're running out of time, but I can't let you go without a quick question about the Silicon Valley bank rescue. It was a huge story for startups, in some ways a, a, a great success story for government. I know you played a key role in it. What are your thoughts briefly on, you know, how it's all going now, eight months later? Yeah, well, it's been really interesting to see. Obviously, you know, there's been kind of the rebrand and and they seem to be rumbling along and succeeding. Obviously, there's always those kind of teething problems as people transition over and, and there's still kind of ongoing questions about how do startups think about some of these kind of risk management questions for want of a better description going forward. But the ability to just, you know, I think it kind of the ability to go back to normal and for startup founders not to worry about whether or not their bank account will work is probably <laughs> very healthy. And hopefully that will be the continuous state now going forward and we won't have to think about it again. Fantastic. Well, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dom. And thanks to everybody who is listening. Do remember that you can keep up to date with all of the latest UK tech developments at www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and X, formerly known as Twitter, where you can also get in touch with me at Jane Wakefield with your comments and suggestions about the show. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by HSBC Innovation Banking, the power behind the UK's forward thinkers, future makers and leap takers. They're helping to ignite the bold ideas that reshape our world. Go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en gb to find out how innovation needs different. 